Hello, everyone. This is Steve Sacklad, and today we're looking at a symposium on achieving and maintaining improved quality of life in patients with tardive dyskinesia. The faculty for today will be Christoph Corell. He is professor of psychiatry and molecular medicine at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in Hampstead, New York. And I will be also participating at the beginning and at the end. Disclosures, Dr. Correll has extensive grant and research support from a variety of companies as he is one of the premier uh, researchers in our field. He works with Janssen, Takeda, uh, Akeda, Alchemies, Allergan, and a variety of other companies that you can see up here, including Neurocrin and Teva, who are supporting this meeting. I have a variety of, of uh, grant and research support as well, uh, but much less extensive. This program is provided by North American Center for Continuing Medical Education and has been funded by educational grants from Neurocrine Biosciences and Teva Pharmaceuticals. Today's learning objectives are to outline the consequences of untreated tardive dyskinesia or TD on quality of life, also QOL, in patients taking antipsychotic medications. Describe the clinical indications for and clinical benefits of administering the abnormal involuntary movement scale or the AIMS scale, and also overcome barriers that interfere with patient adherence to VMAT2 inhibitors for the treatment of tardive dyskinesia in order to improve patient quality of life. So the overview is first, Dr. Correll will be going through a definition and the course of tardive dyskinesia. We'll have a little bit of a very interesting patient perspective videos. We'll be looking at the frequency and risk factors of tardive dyskinesia, the impact of tardive dyskinesia on both functioning and quality of life, identifying and assessing tardive dyskinesia, diagnostic barriers and confounds, emerging neurobiology and modulation of tardive dyskinesia, the management of tardive dyskinesia itself, and then we'll be looking at these newly modified Delphi guidelines on tardive dyskinesia, and then Dr. Correll will be wrapping that up. Okay, it seems that you turned over the talk to me. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sacklett, for the great introduction and for hosting today's program. I'm happy to be here, albeit virtually, in order to talk to you about different aspects of tardive dyskinesia, as has just been discussed. Um, okay. It seems I can move the slides. Okay, sorry about that. Let's first talk about what is tardive dyskinesia. Um, tardive means appearing late and dyskinesia is an 
form of involuntary movements that is a distortion or impairment, we have different diagnostic, diagnostic criteria uh, in DSM. So TD is defined as involuntary movements of the tongue, jaw, so facial movements predominantly, but also the trunk or extremities, extremities that have developed in association with the use of a dopamine blocking medication that is mostly an antipsychotic, a dopamine blocking medication, previously called neuroleptic, but it can also be a medication that is used in other areas of medicine that would block postsynaptic dopamine receptors. The involuntary movements are present over a period of at least one month. So you need to reassess the patient to make sure it's really tardive dyskinesia to confirm it and occur in any of the three following patterns. The most common one is the um, acetoid slow moving sinus continual movement, but there can also be choreiform, rapid or jerky, non-repetitive movements as well as the rhythmic movements. But here we already see that there may be a differentially diagnostic issue. So rapid and jerky, this can also be a tick. So that would be something to exclude. Often ticks have premonitory symptoms that people feel something and an urge and then they can repress it even or suppress ticks. That's not possible here. Myoclonic jerks, are generally not in the context of also acetoid movements. And although there can be some rhythmicity, it's usually arrhythmic, and we need to differentiate these movements from tremors that are really just very, very rhythmic uh, excursions of movements. That is not part of tardive dyskinesia. Symptoms would develop during the exposure of an antipsychotic medication or within four weeks of withdrawal uh, or within eight weeks if the medication is given as a depot. In non-elderly patients, there would need to be at least a three-month exposure of an antipsychotic, but if people are 60 or older, even one month of dopamine-blocking agents can give rise to tardive dyskinesia. So the journey of someone who's unfortunate enough to develop tardive dyskinesia is mapped out here. The person begins dopamine receptor blocking medication. So very important to actually at baseline already take a look at potential involuntary movements, especially in people with intellectual disability, brain trauma, autism. They may have some involuntary movements that are independent of tardive dyskinesia or the antipsychotic. Obviously when tardive dyskinesia symptoms evolve or develop. They can be mild, sometimes not even noticed by the patient, or they can be much more pronounced. And you will see some first-person patient um, accounts in a minute that can really show you how impairing tardive dyskinesia can be. Usually after the first couple of years, the medication may lead to tardive dyskinesia if it happens. The longer the treatment is ongoing, the lower the chances of developing tardive dyskinesia because there is someone who then may be um, genetically or otherwise protected. Also, there can be rebound or withdrawal dyskinesia. And that happens when antipsychotics that block dopamine receptors very strongly are abruptly removed. Sometimes tardive dyskinesia can then also be 
uncovered that was present even before the other medication was given. But when then the medications are totally taken away, the potentially hypersensitive upregulated dopamine receptors are exposed to the endogenous dopamine and that can give rise to usually temporary withdrawal dyskinesia. So you would treat that by reinstating the antipsychotic and then more slowly down titrating it. Between almost 70 to 90% uh, of patients may persist, but um, it's not always the case. Depends really how long the patient had been treated before that and, um, and how old the patient is, whether withdrawal dyskinesias are that persistent. So let's talk about now about TD from a patient perspective. It makes it more difficult because I have to talk to people and be around people um, all day. So, you know, the people I'm around a lot, I just let them know because I'm sure people think I'm just being silly or making ugly faces at them. Um, usually whenever I'm talking to people for a long time and we're looking at each other um, like we are, they'll be like, why are you making the ugly face? Stop, stop that. It's what makes It makes it more difficult because I have to talk to people and be around people um, all day. So, you know, the people I'm around a lot, I just let them know because I'm sure people think I'm just being silly or making ugly faces at them. Um, usually whenever I'm talking to people for a long time and we're looking at each other um, like we are, they'll be like, why are you making the ugly face? Stop, stop that. That's what most people say. Stop making faces. Um, but unfortunately, I can't stop making faces. Take disability. I can't do massage therapy anymore. I am embarrassed to be outside. I was raised in a very religious family, and they thought I was demon possessed because of some of those movements. I this all started, and I couldn't get. I, I had gone to my family doctor. It took me a little while to get into neurologist, I mean, you know. And during that period of time, um, we had Thanksgiving. And we had my wife's relatives. Well, I'm sitting here like, I'm kind of watching the football game over here because, you know, that way I didn't have to try to talk to anyone. It's embarrassing. It's um, quite frustrating. It's, it's ground my teeth down. I grind them at night. And uh, it has actually changed the, the look of my face. Um, I've been a psychotherapist for, uh, since 1989, so 28 years, and I worked uh, 25 years side-by-side side as a psychiatrist doing medication management, um, working in a private practice clinic. So I saw tons of patients, and then I've had a private practice um, since 1989. However, I retired uh, December 15th because of my tardive dyskinesia. It just is too much to... I can explain more about it, but to sit with a client is, is the akathisia and the tardive dyskinesia. And um, I've talked with Dr. Kumar, and it, it's not just a body thing. It's mind-body, and my body's distracted, and I can't. Um, the word is trapped. I feel trapped in my mind, and I can't. We have a noble profession, and we need to be there for our patients, and... Um, I get teary. I, I, 
am distracted and my body's distracted and my mind's distracted and I can't uh, be there and we attune and we there's transference it's a very important job and sorry I don't feel like I'm good at it anymore Okay, so I think this uh, first-person account really drove home what the kind of movement disturbance that we're talking about actually can do to patients, how impairing it can be in terms of social interactions, self-esteem, and also professional or, or social habits. And we need to first identify tardive dyskinesia, avoid it, but then also treat it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So how frequent are tardive dyskinesia symptoms? This is from um, a meta-analysis we conducted on prevalence studies. That means looking at defined patient populations and measuring them carefully with the AIMS uh, score or the AIMS scale that we'll talk about, the abnormal involuntary movement uh, scale. And we looked at these 41 studies and 11,000 patients that were on average um, low 40s, two thirds were male, most were schizophrenia spectrum patients and many studies were actually uh, older studies, so conducted with first generation agents, also with higher doses. And actually in these defined populations, which is not everybody receiving a typical or an atypical antipsychotic, actually one out of four people had tardive dyskinesia symptoms. Not all of them were defined as mild, moderate, severe. Not all of them were confirmed a second time, but at least these movements were obtained with a careful assessment. Now, the TD rates cross-sectionally were still lower with second-generation agents, one out of five versus almost one out of three with first-generation agents. But these numbers really surprised us when we actually analyze them because when I go through the waiting room um, now instead of like maybe 15, 20 years ago, I do not see people easily uh, at a distance having tardive dyskinesia symptoms. Although we have actually increased our use of second generation agents, albeit at lower doses nowadays, and particularly for mood disorders that were at higher risk for tardive dyskinesia in the past with high doses of typical antipsychotics. So we were a little surprised by this, um, and I'll show you the next meta-analysis we did after that, which is an, um, a meta-analysis of the, not prevalence, but incidence, so that we could maybe even look at patients who did not have the onslaught of TD because of prior first-generation treatment, because People who at the time of second generation treatment have tardive dyskinesia symptoms might have acquired the tardive dyskinesia way back. Maybe they were even switched preferentially to a second generation agent because they had the movements. So this bias, basically, this um, channeling bias into second generation agents because of higher risk patients or prior TD can't be excluded. So we found a 20% lower risk cross-sectionally of second-generation agents versus first-generation agents. But interestingly, and that was also another surprise, when second- and first-generation agents were combined, 
the benefit versus uh, a first generation agent was this was the same as if it was just a second generation agent alone that's hard to understand maybe uh, there were very low doses of first generation antipsychotics added to a second generation agent to get a little bit more more efficacy unclear and needs to be um, um, followed up but what's really interesting here is that in the subgroup of patients who had no prior documented first generation antipsychotic treatment then the rate was not 20% anymore, it was only 7% cross-sectionally. So confirming that second-generation agents really have a lower rate of tardive dyskinesia. All right, so let's see, somehow, yeah, okay. Now, this is the incidence meta-analysis. Now we have not uh, 42, but 57 head-to-head -head studies, randomized control trials, including 32 first generation and 86 second generation arms. And there were a bit over 30 pairs of first versus second generation and second versus second generation agents. And we first wanted to confirm, is it true that when you follow people without tardive dyskinesia over time and they have started on a first or a second generation agent, are second generation agents uh, associated with a lower risk? And here you see they were. 2.6%, again, not 0%, not 1%, at least having some movements when carefully observed over a period of almost a year on average, maybe, um, versus but almost 7% with first-generation agents. Here, the, the difference was not only 20% lower, it was 53% lower with second-generation agents. But since people on second-generation agents are treated generally longer. People on first-generation agents drop out because of side effects. It might look as if second-generation agents have less of a protection because they're exposed longer and have more chances of developing tardive dyskinesia. So when we corrected this for time on treatment, so that's not a risk but a rate ratio, so the rate by time, then the reduction was actually down to one-third by two-thirds and the number needed to treat was 20. So after each 20th person that you exposed to a second versus a first generation agent, you prevent one tardive dyskinesia case. Looking at second versus second generation, or, and also the relative risk of second versus first generation agents, two medications stood out. And thus, well, this was the partial agonist aripiprazole. Partial agonists generally don't upregulate postsynaptic receptors as much, so that makes sense. And olanzapine, which has an inbuilt antihistaminergic and um, also less dopamine blocking effect. So these two agents had the best protection relative to the uh, first generation agents. And in non-clozapine treatments, because clozapine has also some protection, uh, clozapine as well as olanzapine seem to be somewhat better than other atypical antipsychotics. But here the number needed to treat was as high as 100. So it takes 100 patients on olanzapine to prevent one tardive dyskinesia case on another atypical antipsychotic. And obviously um, the risk of uh, diabetes, weight gain, and metabolic abnormalities is far higher so that these two risks need to be balanced against each other. What are risk factors? 
Here you see on the far right column the adjusted risk of tardive dyskinesia associated with certain uh, comorbidities. So the risk is up by 50 to 100%, including drug abuse, diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. So the cluster of cardiometabolic risk, as well as smoking, whereas alcohol abuse did not lead to a higher risk of tardive dyskinesia in adjusted analyses. This is from a summary where we divided the risk of tardive dyskinesia into non-modifiable and modifiable risk factors. So non-modifiable risk factors, patient-related uh, older age, female sex, African descent more than Caucasian, the lowest risk in Asians that must be genetic. There are some genetic polymorphisms that have to do with dopamine metabolism, also packaging in the presynaptic terminal in the vesicles, and that will become relevant when we talk about the new approved agents, the VMAT2 inhibitors, vesicular monoamine transporter inhibitors, because they affect reduce the packaging of dopamine into the presynaptic terminals, making less dopamine available that can hit these postsynaptic receptors. And then also some um, issues with whether you get higher levels of the antipsychotics based on genetics of the clearance of antipsychotics. But we're more interested in the modifiable risk factors so that you and I can actually try to either select patients or do something else in treatment differently um, in order to have lower chances of TD developing. So at least with first-generation agents, the illness-related factors were mood disorders were at higher risk. We don't know whether that is true for second-generation agents. Cognitive dysfunction, longer illness duration, more negative symptoms, as well as intellectual disability and brain damage. So some hardware problem already that's identified in the brain. Comorbidities. Again, you've seen it already, smoking. In this more meta-analytic approach or systematic review, alcohol abuse still stood out, although in the other singular study it didn't. Substance abuse, as well as diabetes, that seems to be, again, a risk factor for TD. And then treatment-related, which is what we need to take into account because that's what we can really modify the most. We can obviously tell people, quit smoking or reduce it, quit alcohol or reduce it, and substance abuse, lose some weight and control your blood sugar better. But using second-generation antipsychotics as one precautionary activity, um, looking at avoiding acute motor syndromes. Don't treat people to the neuroleptic thresholds or above so that they get acute dystonia Parkinsonism or akathisia. Try to be below that or use medications that do not have that risk. Try to get away with the lowest possible dose, but don't go too low either because you don't want to cause people to have a relapse either. Um, the dose and the levels are basically the same issue. And then um, intermittent treatment is not good. This on-off so tell people also in terms of adherence that it's important and when people come off the medication to really down titrate slowly and then co-treatment with anticholinergics which is very important because some clinicians in some areas of the world still believe that tardive dyskinesia is an eps an extra pyramidal symptom or side effect and that i treat 
with an anticholinergic. Now, if someone has EPS, Parkinsonism, and that predisposes to tardive dyskinesia, don't mask EPS by giving an anticholinergic. Lower the dose or switch to a medication that does not cause or lead to extrapyramidal symptoms. Okay, uh, it's a little fickle. So now having talked about the risk factors, let's talk about the impact of TD on functioning and quality of life. You already heard some of that in the accounts of the patients that had to fight with or grapple with tardive dyskinesia. And here's a study that shows you that on social withdrawal, quality of life to the left and right, as well as in the middle, mental and physical functioning, people with tardive dyskinesia had lower or worse scores than people with schizophrenia who did not have tardive dyskinesia. So clearly an impairing syndrome. Now, healthcare costs are also higher, and that is not only for inpatient admissions and ER visits, so these are sicker patients. Now, here the question is, what's chicken or what is egg? Do patients with more severe illness get more tardive dyskinesia? Does tardive dyskinesia cause, in a way, uh, more admissions? I doubt it. I think it's more maybe a, a proxy measure that more severely ill patients get higher doses of antipsychotics, inappropriately so, and that can then lead to tardive dyskinesia. But also people who intermittently stop medication and have relapses, which triggers treatment, secondary treatment resistance, are at higher risk of tardive dyskinesia. If you look on the right-hand side, the healthcare costs are not so much driven up by inpatient care, they're mostly driven up by outpatient care and pharmacy. So these patients just need more care outside because they are overall in greater need. Here, another study showing that people with tardive dyskinesia were more likely to be homeless, have any medical or psychiatric hospitalization, as well as substance use related hospitalization. This is an interesting study that hasn't been published yet to my knowledge, and it looked at social distancing, so to speak, and social problems in people who have tardive dyskinesia. So here it's about a job interview, and then on the next slide you see something about friendship and dating. And whenever you have more red and yellow, and whenever that's present in the second bar of these twin bars, then the TD patients or patients with tardive dyskinesia are disadvantaged because more people strongly disagree or disagree with a positive statement. And so you can see that I'd be interested in learning more about this candidate, people with tardive dyskinesia fare worse. Same with, I'd be willing to suggest that others in my company should interview this candidate worse. I think the candidate would be suitable for a client facing job worse. But then this is not just because these patients are sicker and they are more inappropriate. When it comes to dressing, their dressing up is fine. Their outer appearance, except for the TD, seems to be fine. And actually their qualification for a job is not in question because on the lowest bar you see that there's no difference in thinking that the candidate would be suitable for a back office job. They can do that job, but we don't want face-to-face -face, um, uh, contact. 
Let's go to dating interest, same picture. Less interest, more disagreement. I'd be interested in meeting him for coffee. I would like to continue talking to him on Skype. I would, uh, I find the person attractive or I like him or her, but it's not because people are less uh, well-dressed, that's the same. And also it's not because of hairstyle or so. It's really the movements are somewhat off-putting. And then the same is even true for friendships. The dress, being dressed well and seeming friendly is the same, but I would consider meeting here, him or her once she or he moves. Um, seems like really interesting are lower values. So even though the person is still the same with the movement disorder, their social likability, desirability, their social connectedness, and also ability to get or hold a job might be severely impaired. We also need to uh, take into account that the tardive dyskinesia is often in your face because the facial movements are most common. And when it affects the mouth or the jaw or the tongue, speech can be affected. And obviously we communicate with the face, we communicate with speech. And when communication is hampered, then having a job like the psychotherapist, but also having friends and social connection can be severely impaired. So if optimum outcomes are desired, it's important to avoid, prevent, and control tardive dyskinesia symptoms in patients taking antipsychotic medications. Now let's go clinical. What should we do to assess it? How do we actually know someone has tardive dyskinesia? I already mentioned when touching upon the criteria that there can be some other movements that we need to differentiate. But let's first look at the seven body regions that are being examined by the AIMS, the Abnormal Involuntary Movement Scale. And you can see out of seven, four are in above the neck. So they're in the face, lips, perioral, tongue or jaw, because that's where it most often happens. And then we have upper and lower extremities, as well as the part in between trunk, neck, shoulders and hips. Tardive dyskinesia can happen everywhere, but it often starts early and is visible in the tongue, in the mouth, in the jaw, in the face, and then it might move to other areas, but we need to examine all areas. Now, the aims is something that everybody should feel comfortable doing. Actually, it takes, when you've done it a couple of times, maybe two minutes, uh, maybe three, not more. Uh, because you go through a, um, a standard procedure and we'll see some of that procedure in a video in a minute. Um, you look first at the person at rest, muscle of facial expression, lips, perioral area, jaw and tongue. But the tongue is obviously inside of the mouth. So you need to also ask the people to open their mouth and that's at rest. And then you do an, a maneuver where you actually let the person tip fingers against the thumb. That's an activation procedure. When you have voluntary movement, then involuntary movement can be accentuated. You have to do that while the person has their mouth open, even though you're doing it on the hand and you look at the contralateral um, hand in order to see what's happening there, because that's the, the hand and the other body parts that should be at rest. And then you do it on the other side again, and then you stress people by not doing it sitting down, but you 
let them stand up against gravity, which also brings out abnormal movements. You're looking again with an open mouth at the mouth, at the tongue, at the face, and then stretched out with the wrists hanging at the fingers and the other parts of the body, which include lower legs, knees, ankles, toes, back, shoulder, and hip. And then you judge for each of those seven areas, whether it's a zero, no movement, minimal, it's just visible, but not much, mild, moderate, or severe. And actually to, to diagnose tardive dyskinesia, you need at least two twos or one three. Two twos or one three, at least two miles or one three, and the two miles have to be in different regions, obviously. So um, it's, not, it's not forehead, eyebrows, cheeks. It is either muscle or facial expression plus lips or perioral. Uh, it's jaw plus tongue. And then you rate also the overall severity. And there, not everybody is clear. Is it just the highest number that you give? I usually try to uh, take the overall picture into account. And then you rate whether the person is incapacitated and are they aware? And you should ask that obviously beforehand. Are you aware of any movements? And it's quite striking that patients who have noticeable movements, even without activation, are often not aware of them. It's just part of their body and how they are. And they often come because others notice it and point it out. But that doesn't mean that there is no suffering or functional impairment, because even if people are not aware of it, others are aware and then turn away from them, which can lead to secondary negative symptoms, or social isolation, as well as obviously hopelessness and depression. And then you also need to know whether there's any problems with dentures, because that can artificially make you uh, push like the tongue up in order to keep the dentures in place. As I mentioned, the Schuller Kane criteria, uh, which are, are the main criteria we use, uh, would have the same as the definition in the DSM, at least three months of cumulative antipsychotic exposure, again, at least one month if it's 60 years or older. And then moderate voluntary, involuntary movements in one area, that's an, a three or two miles at least in um, two or more body areas that is the two twos. And there's an absence of a condition that might produce involuntary movements like Wilson's disease or Huntington's chorea. So let's see, I think the next is up, okay. Yeah, the next is a video, but before we go there, so um, to do the AIMS exam, you sit the person on a chair, either with, um, um, with sides that they can rest their hands on or their arms on, but you can also just let them lean forward and put their elbows on their knees. It's important that the, the hands, the wrists hang loosely, that they're not um, basically held up because that reduces the chance of finding the um, abnormal involuntary movements. You ask whether there's anything in their mouth, you ask them whether they have dentures. So if they basically have a chewing gum, obviously that needs to go out or, or a, a lozenger or something because that, that gives you artificial movements. And then you ask them whether they notice anything and then you go through the maneuvers that will be partially shown on the next video. My first question for you is just to check to see, do you have anything in your mouth right now like gum or candy? 
Nothing in your mouth. Okay, very good. Right, do you have any problems with your teeth right now? Any sores, loose teeth, any problems whatsoever? No. Okay. And do you have your own teeth or do you wear dentures? Uh, I have my own teeth. You have your own teeth. So, again, no problems with your teeth at all. Have you noticed at any point in time recently any movements in your face, around your mouth, around your hands, or in your feet? Have you noticed any movements at all or disturbances in those areas? No. No, nothing at all? Just my face. Just Okay, well, tell me a little bit. What, what do you notice in your face? My mouth. Your mouth. Does, does it move sometimes when you don't want it to? Yes. Okay. Does it prevent you from being able to do anything? Yes. Okay. Can you give me an example of something it might prevent you from doing? Talk. Difficulty talking? Okay. Very good. And I understand, it, uh, is it something that bothers you or prevents you from wanting to do things? Yes. Okay. All right. Now, the next thing I'm going to ask you is I would actually like you just to kind of sit like you're, you are right now. Sit up tall with your hands on your knees. And I'm just going to observe while you're doing that. Okay. So you just relax. Okay. Next, if you would, please, can you just take your hands and let them hang down to your side? Just let them hang, and I'm just going to sit and observe as well. So you just sit and relax. Okay, very good. All right, Fred, the next piece of the exam is actually a part where I'm going to examine uh, some areas around your mouth. If you could please open your mouth and try and keep your tongue in your mouth for me. So open wide and keep your tongue in. Stay in that position for me. Okay, very good. You can relax. And this is also a portion of an exam where I have to do it twice. It's going to ask you to please open your mouth again and try and keep your tongue in your mouth. All right, very good. You can relax. Go ahead and close your mouth and relax. Okay, the next step is if you could please open your mouth and stick your tongue out. So extend your tongue. Open wide and extend your tongue and hold it out. Good. Go ahead and relax. Okay, let's go ahead and repeat this one more time as well. So open wide and extend your tongue for me. Very good. Okay, you can relax. Okay. The next part of the exam is one in which I'm going to ask you to raise your arms. So if you could please lift your arms like I am. Very good. I want you to raise one hand, preferably this hand, to start. Then I'm going to ask you to tap your thumb to your finger repeatedly. So in this hand, can you please tap your thumb and your finger together and keep going all the way through. Show me how quickly and accurately you can do that. 
Very good. Now you keep doing that while I observe. Very good. You can relax. Put your arms down. Thank you. Now we're going to repeat it on the other side though, so I need you to raise both hands up again, right about here. Raise this hand, bend it. Okay, in that hand, I would also like you to tap your thumb to your fingers again. So keep tapping. There you go. Keep doing that while I observe. Keep tapping. Very good. You can relax. Okay, Fred, for the next part of the exam, I actually need you to stand up for me, if you would, please. And if you could just stand in a relaxed manner, and I will make some observations, and you can just stand and stare straight ahead and just relax. Okay, great. Now, the next part, I would like you to actually stick your arms straight out in front of you, both of them, and just kind of let your wrists hang and bring them down just a little bit lower, right like that. And you just stand there for a few seconds. And again, while I make some observations. You're doing great. Good job. Okay, you can put your arms down and relax. Okay, so you saw some of the exam. Um, again, there are different ways of doing it. Uh, I like to do the activation with the fingers while always looking at an open mouth. And you also obviously look at the contralateral hand. You want the hands to hang uh, at the wrist, so I wouldn't put the hands on the knees, but rather above the knees. But overall, you saw that if you take time, uh, it takes longer, but once you know it a little bit more, you, you get through the uh, different parts of the body. So what, what are the diagnostic barriers and the confounds when assessing people with tardive dyskinesia? Oops, okay. Well, um, we already talked about some other neuromotor syndromes that we need to differentiate. So EPS is a, a mixed bag. Actually, people don't like to use it when you talk to neurologists. It's an overarching term. Um, that may include some uh, acute dystonic reaction or tardive symptoms, uh, akathisia, bradykinesia, dyskinesia, dystonia, Parkinsonian symptoms, and tremor. But we want those, those involuntary movements that are um, occurring. You saw in him that he had this pulling of the neck to the left. as always a little bit of a dystonic reaction because often dyskinesia and dystonia comes together, but yet the grimacing, he had a lot of lip movements inside and outside of the um, mouth, and then even once a lizard sign where the tongue uh, protruded forward quickly. He didn't have any that I could see movements in his fingers, in his trunk, in his hip. Now, Lega Artis, you would also have him remove the shoes and look at the toes, but it was clear the patient has uh, tardive dyskinesia. That is, um, uh, at a moderate level um, because, and, and multiple facial um, areas. Akathisia is a subjective feeling of restlessness that can also obviously translate into um, uh, the feeling you, you need to move, but it doesn't have this irregularity, this, this uh, sometimes burst-like um, choreative form um, movement. 
bradykinesia, yes, he was also somewhat slow. We don't know that he has EPS. For that, we would have to do the Simpson-Angus exam, just uh, looking at his elbow and moving it around, unclear. Uh, he could also have negative symptoms or be depressed. He had some dystonic reaction, as I said, this stardite dystonia, this pulling to the left, the slow movement of the neck. Um, and then Parkinsonian symptoms are obviously defined by ART, A-R-T, akinesia, rigidity, and tremor. We didn't see any tremor in him, so it's very unlikely that this is just uh, Parkinsonian symptoms, but he could have some stiffness. Uh, we didn't see a tremor, but there was clearly tardive dyskinesia present. We talked about the usual presentation being orobucolingual, so it's basically the face, the um, the cheeks and the tongue, stereotypies, and it can vary across different body regions with the severity. And there was some choreoid form and dystonic reaction or, or, or movement pattern in him. We talked about uh, Parkinsonism just a second ago, the akinesia or bradykinesia that might coexist with TD. Please don't use anticholinergic medications, lower the dose if possible or change the medication. And tremor is usually part of this, which he did not have. All right, so what's the understanding of tardive dyskinesia's neurobiology? And I will not have time to go into this in great detail. I apologize for that. But there are some brain regions that seem to be involved, but we still don't fully understand that. Is that more chronicity? Um, some areas were larger, some were smaller. You can read about it. I do not want to go too deeply into detail here. Um, but what's relevant to understand also the mechanism of action of medications that work, we need to understand what happens at the level of the synapse. And here we have the presynaptic neuron up front, or on the top rather, and we have the postsynaptic area at the bottom. And so the dopamine metabolism, so to speak, neuronal metabolism involves vesicles, presynaptic, where there's dopamine stored in this, um, these presynaptic vesicles, and the VMAT2, the vesicular monoamine transporter 2 activity, the transporter either is active and pumps dopamine into the uh, vesicle together with histamine, serotonin, or adrenaline, but mostly dopamine. Um, and then based on the, the, the status of the brain and the, the transmission of information, then there's a dopamine release that goes to the postsynaptic receptors. The postsynaptic receptors are either in a normal state or they're in an upregulated or hypersensitive state, particularly when you block dopamine postsynaptically, the body says, where is my dopamine signal? And responds to that by increasing either the number of dopamine receptors that are now expressed, they were previously, they're in intracellular, they become extracellular, or they are more sensitive. The number, density, and sensitivity of these receptors can change. And then when the dopamine has hit these receptors, they, the dopamine is then taken up again into the synaptic, uh, through the synaptic cleft into the presynaptic terminal. And that then determines again the, um, availability of dopamine presynaptically. And all of these components uh, impact tardive dyskinesia. How much dopamine you have presynaptically, how much is stored, how much is released, 
how many receptors the dopamine actually hits. Here we have just a little bit more of detail uh, that basically um, the different um, ways of either breaking down dopamine or storing it, but for the intensive purposes of this uh, talk, let's just focus on the vesicular monoamine transporter to VMAT2 that either does pump or does not pump dopamine into the, or store it into the vesicle. Now, why is this relevant? Because, and this is again a very complex slide, uh, but you've heard, I think, a lot about it, that in the brain we have a go-no-go -no -go system, and dopamine is involved in both, and glutamate is also with the direct dopamine system, where too much dopamine actually stimulates the firing and gives you the go uh, on the dopamine system. But then also, um, you can have an overstimulation of dopamine on the GABA neurons, which then basically stops some of the inhibition and there's too little stop. So you have a dual problem that there's too much go by having too much direct dopamine outflow and too much stopping of the dopamine outflow. Now, what um, a VMAT2 inhibitor can do is actually reduces the presynaptic stimulation and interneuronal stimulation postsynaptically of dopamine on the GABA neuron that leads to disinhibition. So there's less stop and there's also less dopamine available for the direct pathway, which has less go, and thereby less dopamine hits these upregulated postsynaptic receptors or altered or autonomous dopamine receptors. We don't fully understand that yet, but that as a net effect then leads to a diminution of abnormal involuntary movements. And here we have another picture of that that with the VMAT2 inhibitor dose, the higher it is, the less dopamine is stored. Therefore, the concentration that's available postsynaptically is reduced. But there's obviously an interaction whether or not you still have a dopamine blocker in place that might push up the sensitivity and number of dopamine receptors, whether you can switch from a tight D2 binding agent to a lesser D2 binding agent or a partial agonist to actually maybe rebalance the system, whether you can actually in people who don't have schizophrenia or psychosis, whether you can stop the antipsychotic altogether, the dopamine receptor blocker, which may have the biggest chance of getting rid of the dopamine blockade related tardive dyskinesia symptoms. So that brings me to the second last part, that's management, and then we'll talk about guidelines. How do we manage tardive dyskinesia? Now, this is a treatment paradigm, uh, an algorithm. It uh, it's, looks complex, but it's rather simple. You look whether basically there is tardive dyskinesia or not. You want to stay to the left for approved indications. But if there are non-troublesome symptoms, then you might actually uh, alter the dopamine dose or the dopamine medication, and there's improvement you just watch. If there are troublesome symptoms, both functioning or distress, um, then again, you try to optimize the antipsychotic. And if that doesn't help, and these tardive dyskinesia symptoms are still prominent and impairing, then level A, because of two uh, randomized control trials with each of these agents that were positive, 
um, and they are now FDA approved, you can give either dutetrabenazine or valbenazine as the approved MEMAT2 inhibitors. If they are not available, um, then one could potentially try tetrabenazine. That is uh, basically the first BMAT2 inhibitor that's um, not uh, static or constant like reserpin was, um, which can obviously lead to many problems because if you deplete the uh, mono, monoamine stores, then people can get quite depressed. And that can happen with tetrabenazine too because it's too potent. And um, we usually in psychiatry don't use it much. Neurologists have been able to use it, but there's a warning, black box warning for either um, suicidality or depression, which is not the case with the modern BMAT2 inhibitors. Now, the level two is either a benzodiazepine, um, that's level B rather, or ginkgo biloba. Ginkgo biloba might sound a little strange. This is based on mostly Chinese studies. So I'm not sure how much we can actually um, uh, put our money on this. Uh, the, the, the evidence is really with the BMAT2 inhibitors. Amantadine is level C, and then um, deep brain, brain stimulation may be uh, a last resort option. So BMAT2 inhibitors based on the Canadian guidelines, grade A, amantadine B, benzos B, um, and then um, deep brain stimulation, maybe a last resort. You may notice that here uh, ginkgo biloba is not included because again, the data come only from one region of the world where there have been also questions about some of the uh, integrity. This is just a slide to remind us that benztropin actually was one of the biggest risk factors for uh, tardive dyskinesia. Now it's unclear whether it's the, the anticholinergic medication itself or whether it's again a marker of prior EPS and uh, dystonic reactions, which might be uh, a risk factor indicating that the dopamine system is so fragile, but be it as it may, uh, try to stay below the neuroleptic threshold anyway and don't mask EPS with benztropin, rather adjust the dose or the medication. So the modern management have the dopamine depleting is a strong word. I would say this was what reserpin does, but dopamine modulating, presynaptic dopamine modulating drugs. Um, one can also, if you have focal problems, uh, you could use uh, botulinum toxin but um, you, you saw in this patient, you can't, uh, maybe for the neck, you can do something, but not for all the other movements. All right, so we have dutetrabenazine and valbenazine available. Both reach good receptor occupancy of 70 to 80% at the approved doses. And let's now go through the individual agents. Start with tetrabenazine, the grandfather of the two agents. Now, Dutetrabenazine has a deuterium uh, added instead of uh, the H3, and that is basically uh, a non-problematic uh, 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 conversion to deuterium, which uh, doesn't have any uh, physical uh, effects that's uh, problematic. It just stabilizes the molecule so to that there is a less strong breakdown into the active and inactive metabolites. So what has happened then with dutetrabenazine, you can dose it twice a day instead of three times a day. And there's less peak trough variation, meaning 
you don't have as many peak dose-related, peak level-related side effects. And that's the advantage. It still has um, the four active metabolites, which, or oh, four metabolites, and that can be a little bit of a problem with off-target symptoms, at least theoretically. Here you see the vastly improved uh, pharmacokinetic profile of dutetrabenazine versus tetrabenazine, which improves its tolerability vastly. Now, valbenazine also derives in a way from tetrabenazine, but instead of having these active and inactive uh, metabolites, and some of which are actually postsynaptic dopamine blockers with dutetrabenazine, tetrabenazine can cause EPS and akathisia. Now, dutetrabenazine doesn't do that um, more than uh, placebo, but here we have an isolated um, racemate or isolated form of the um, breakdown products of, of tetrabenazine, which is symptomatic or uh, which has uh, its efficacy just on the presynaptic VMAT2 uh, pump. Because you can see that here, that only one of the four forms that tetrabenazine is transformed into, only one of them, valbenazine actually binds to very strongly. Uh, the second, a little bit, but otherwise there are no off-target um, affinities. Now, there was also a longer half-life because of that. And here, you don't dose it twice a day, but just once a day. All right, so what are the recent trials? Uh, both dutetrabenazine and valbenazine are approved for the treatment of tardive dyskinesia. I'm showing you the main phase three studies. Here are three doses of uh, dutetrabenazine. Dutetrabenazine needs some titration. Um, that's why these studies are 12 weeks long. Um, and you can see that the higher doses, 24 and 36, clearly separated and were equipotent against placebo. And one of the questions was how many points from baseline there was an improvement. And actually, you can see it here, three points. And the same is true for valbenazine in the six-week studies. We'll see that in a minute. Now, side effects were very minimal, and that's really a strong suit for both dutetrabenazine and tetrabenazine, because tetrabenazine, uh, sorry, and valbenazine, because tetrabenazine has been affected, afflicted by many side effects. So, a little bit of headache, some somnolence, diarrhea, nasopharyngitis, and fatigue, but really 5% or lower. And you notice here there's basically uh, 2% of depression or dysthymia, 2% of akathisia agitation. So very, very well tolerated. Um, here we have valbenazine, um, also a very uh, strong uh, effect versus placebo. Even less placebo effect was about one point in the prior study. Here is almost zero. And again, at the higher dose, around three-point reduction, same as with dutetrabenazine, although here already at six weeks, not at 12, because there was no titration needed. And then you see the somnolence here was a little higher, not 5%, but 11% with valbenazine, 
but other than that also very low rates of akathisia or other side effects and no depression. Now both trials had about three point difference from baseline and either one point or zero points on placebo and in a study that we did looking at the minimal uh, clinically relevant um, difference that is not just statistically different but also means something clinically actually a two-point difference from placebo uh, gives you uh, already an important clinical advantage and this is a meta-analysis we did showing that both dutetrabenazine and valbenazine were significantly better at moderate effect sizes compared to placebo and that the studies all were in the same direction. Now what about long-term treatment? These are six and 12 weeks. It's interesting when you do long-term follow-up on people on dutetrabenazine, the improvement actually, actually becomes even larger over time. But then when patients are stopped, in general the effect goes back and trends back to the baseline. Now, not everybody will have a return of the symptoms, particularly those where you were able to stop the antipsychotic might not, but it's, it shows that most likely many patients will benefit from long-term treatment. And if you look here at the clinical global or the patient global impression scale, having much or very much improved at the end of uh, six to 12 weeks, this was maybe half of the patients. And then at the end of a year, you had more like two thirds or even three quarters at the end of two years. So you have further and further improvement in patients achieving the goal. And here are similar results for a one-year study with valbenazine, nice improvement over time. Even after the six weeks, it continues. And then when people are stopped, even at just, uh, uh, basically four weeks later, there's a big uh, decrease in the benefits people had. And here you see again, much or very much improved, even up to 80 or 90% in this sample. Obviously the two samples cannot be fully compared because they were done in different patients. All right, so what are the potential challenges? Um, well, VMAT2 therapies can lead to sedation. So you, they're relatively low, give it at bedtime. Now with dutetrabenazine, you have to give the medication twice a day. Uh, there can be an off-label use of just using it in the evening, but the data uh, have not been collected. Um, then obviously for valbenazine, you can move it all to the evening, but with dutetrabenazine, the sedation rates were very low, so this is not really a problem. Even akathisia and EPS rates were very low. You can either reduce the dose of the VMAT therapy or think about lowering the dose of the antipsychotic. Um, and then basically you could skip an AM dose, but that's off-label and we're not sure what that will bring. Um, if you have akathisia, obviously uh, beta blockers can be helpful. Um, anticholinergics, again, I would avoid, rather target the EPS by lowering the dose or changing the antipsychotic. Lack of insight, um, people might not appreciate that they actually have an improvement, so it's important to have caregivers uh, or informants to help uh, see that. Also, um, maybe patients are not willing to, to actually um, say how much the medication side effect screws things up for them. Um, you might have to ask them 
whether other people think that something is wrong or what could be done better. Because even this patient, when he was first on the video asked, do you have any problems? He said, no. And then only after probing a little further, uh, what about movement? Yeah, maybe my mouth. And then it took some more asking to get him to acknowledge that it stopped, that impedes his uh, speaking. Now the self-awareness can be a problem that people might not want to continue the treatment and then uh, the symptoms come back and they are again socially isolated. And so um, basically the reduction in uh, the, the abnormal movements can often lead to substantial uh, improvement or reduction of this physical, social, and psychological impairment. Both are effective and patients can remain on the antipsychotic if they need it. So that's a strong suit. Patients might sometimes not want to talk about TD because they know if the medication is switched or stopped that they then can decompensate. Now, there are no head-to-head -head studies of the two agents, so we don't know which one is better than the other. Um, studies were somewhat different. So fine-tuning of regime is something to do. And obviously when one doesn't work, or work enough, you might switch to the next one as the best next treatment strategy. So um, best management approach, you solicit and answer the questions, you share educational resources, determine whether the medication that might cause the TD, the antipsychotic can be withdrawn, reduced or changed. You offer FDA approved treatment option, which at this time would be the um, Balbenazine or dutetrabenazine. You assess, discuss, and uh, also um, foreshadow what kind of side effects could happen, set reasonable expectations. These medications don't necessarily uh, curb all of the symptoms, uh, but might reduce it to a degree that people can speak again, that uh, their symptoms are mostly under control, uh, and uh, it doesn't interfere so much socially and with their self-confidence and self-efficiency. Um, have the patient call the clinic uh, when you start the medication, titrate appropriately and schedule a follow-up appointment. Now again, there is no need to discontinue or change the antipsychotic therapy if that medication otherwise works. Um, also, if there are co-medications, cool antidepressants or mood stabilizers, uh, there are little drug-drug interactions, and the VMAT2 inhibitors have been shown effective whether or not tardive dyskinesia was present in a mood disorder or in schizophrenia. So let me finish up with new modified Delphi guidelines. A group of experts came together, asked some questions, put them together, these 11 TD experts, and then out of uh, 60 invited other clinicians and experts, 29 uh, actually participated, 29 years of experience of treating patients. And so what were the recommendations? All patients currently taking a dopamine receptor blocking agent should be screened for tardive dyskinesia. And here we also have metoclopramide because I mentioned it's not only an antipsychotic that can do that. No, it's also medications used in general medicine, particularly in elderly patients who have maybe gastric uh, motility problems, and here metoclopramide can lead to tardive dyskinesia. Um, following treatment attributes, again, try to 
not give first-generation antipsychotics if possible, look for older age, longer exposure and intermittent exposure, and whether patients had other extrapyramidal side effects. Screening assessments use the AIMS, semi-structured uh, assessment that is, we already talked about it, what it entails. You also should look at uh, history of movement and psychomotor problems, as well as complaints in functioning and quality of life areas. The clinical assessment uh, should uh, be, regardless uh, of the risk for TD, should be performed at every clinical encounter, uh, but that basically means to, to scan and screen them. Uh, routine semi-structured and less frequent ass assessments for movement disorders can take place. Most of us believe that you should at least ask whether they have noticed any movement uh, disorder or involuntary movement and look at their face, but maybe every three months do a formal TARDIF dyskinesia assessment. Following strategies should be considered of your treatment approach. Discuss treatment options for TARDIF dyskinesia with patients and caregivers. Review and consider modifying the antipsychotic regime. We already talked about lowering the dose, maybe switching to an agent that has a lower risk of TD and then consider treatment with one of the two approved VMAT2 inhibitors. Furthermore, in your treatment approach, you need to obviously consider the severity as well as location of TD. It's location, location, location. If it's in the tongue and if it's in the face, it's so visible. If it interferes with speaking, with eating, with swallowing, that is something that's maybe more problematic than having a little bit of problems in the toes or sometimes um, in, in the back. Um, phenomenology, does it involve dystonia, which can sometimes even be painful, so you need to ask about that too. And if it's localized, then uh, again, Botox injection is one possibility, but that should be only done if there is a um, one focal area. What about the psychiatric stability? Uh, if they are not stable, then you can maybe preferentially switch. But if this is the medication that has worked the best, then maybe adding a VMAT2 inhibitor should be considered more foremost. Um, also, don't tolerate acute extrapyramidal side effects. Um, so Parkinsonism needs to be addressed, not by adding an anticholinergic, but rather by lowering the dose or switching. Look also at suicide attempts. Are people so socially isolated and have a problem with the TD that you really need to do something about it? And also what is the subjective awareness and distress as well as the impact of the movements on functioning? Again, management of anticholinergics, try to modify this, reduce the dose, ideally taper off. Don't, don't um, give a, a, an uh, anticholinergic to the mix that's already upset and imbalanced in the brain. And then also um, look at other ways of addressing EPS or dystonia. So I can't advance the slides anymore. Um, so basically, this concludes, no, it doesn't conclude, we, we continue, thank you. Let me see what the last slide was before that. Um, 
All right, so I can't go back, but let me read what's on here. So basically the VMAT2 inhibitors, the following should be considered when you prescribe VMAT2 inhibitors as part of overall and integrated pharmacologic uh, treatment plan depends on the patient's conditions and need, obviously. Also talk to caregivers and uh, look at the response to the antipsychotic maintenance treatment, um, look at tolerability, safety, efficacy, as well as ease of use. And again, if a VMAT2 inhibitor is ineffective or not tolerated, then, or the client, uh, the next switch is to switch to another one, which was one of the questions that might uh, be available before going to lesser evidence-based agents. And we talked about benzos, clomazepam, amantadine, um, and so forth. So uh, I'm not sure whether Steve is taking over. No, we have the conclusions. Thank you. That's what I was waiting for. One more slide. So what have we learned together today to give us time for discussion? TD is often forgotten as a problem of the prior first-generation agents, but even atypical antipsychotics have been associated with the risk of TD. There's still a real challenge, sometimes a hangover from prior first-generation treatments, sometimes due to intermittent treatments based on non-adherence. Our understanding of the risk and characteristics of TD have evolved and more data have accumulated, especially if TD affects a person's life considerable functionally and in terms of subjective distress, distress, we need to do something about it. And nowadays what we can do about it, and again, I can't advance the slide, maybe you can help me, then thank you, screening proactively, routinely and systematically should be done. Innovative alterations of tetrabenazine, such as dutetrabenazine and valbenazine are a proved now and available for your use and are expected to better serve patients' needs. Treatment planning should include the assessment of adherence to the, uh, both the dopamine blocking agents as well as treatments for TD. Also significant prominent research, including activity and control uh, TD has been shown. So basically we need to know about this as you now do and also consider them in order to improve the functionality and quality of life of patients suffering from TD. So let's move on and take a look at uh, the questions we've received from the audience. Uh, I have quite a few. Um, how long does antipsychotic tardive dyskinesia withdrawal usually last following discontinuation? Yeah, that's a great question. It varies, but generally four to 12 weeks is my experience. I don't know, Steve, what, what you would say. Uh, I, I would agree. Uh, I usually use a couple of months as a routine new, uh, neuroleptic withdrawal dyskinesia. And then if it's after that, it's time to move on to something to treat it. Uh, let's see. I have another question coming up here. Are there long-term studies with aripiprazole for depression augmentation looking at tardive dyskinesia? I've seen a much higher rate than expected, even at low doses. Of course, we know from previous research that any mood disorder increases tardive dyskinesia risk. And uh, I know that this is from an old pro at, at uh, psychopharmacology. So see what you can do with that. 
Well, um, unfortunately, we, when we did our, our meta-analysis of both prevalence and incidence rates, there were almost no data in mood disorder patients. They were mixed in, but we're giving anti atypical antipsychotics, including our piperazole, to many people now with uh, mood disorders, and we have no clue what the rates are. In the package that was presented to the FDA and the EMA in Europe, there were very minimal data on tardiaphyscanesia, even on long-term exposure. So we need more data. And I, I don't think that uh, aripiprazole would be the offender because at least in the data, it looked like, uh, if anything, it's on the lower risk rates than other agents, but quetiapine is used a lot. And um, um, now lorazidone is used. We, we don't know enough about uh, what low dose treatment uh, long-term in depression actually means when it's uh, augmenting SSRIs. And we, we need uh, large uh, surveys and hopefully uh, some uh, investigators will actually go there and do it. I don't know what you would say, I, Steve. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think that the market share for the antipsychotics being used in mood disorders is, is close to half from the surveys I've seen. So we're missing a very, very large chunk of patients we need to be studying in more detail. The next question, patients with a diagnosis of uh, type 2 diabetes have an, but have, an ab, have a normal A1C due to diabetes treatment, is there still a risk for tardive dyskinesia? Is it just the, tardive, just the diabetes, the risk, or is it the... Uh, uh, discontrol of glucose? It's a wonderful question. I don't think we have any data. If I would uh, have to surmise, I think it is more the really the dysregulation of, of, of uh, insulin as well as glucose. So having uh, the diagnosis of diabetes but not the phenotype most likely doesn't increase the risk. But that's, that's just a hypothesis. I, don't, I haven't seen any data on that. But it's a great question. Yes. Um, would you consider using an antipsychotic with high anticholinergic binding affinities such as olanzapine if a patient has current or history of tardive dyskinesia? Again, a great question. In our meta-analysis, olanzapine, although it has anticholinergic properties, uh, had actually a lower risk that was close to clozapine um, in the meta-analysis. So maybe it's not the anticholinergic per se that is given in response to EPS. So the EPS is then the, the risk factor, but rather the absence of EPS that comes about when you have antihistaminergic and anticholinergic effects and lower D2 binding with olanzapine that would make it protective. So based on the data, although there are anticholinergic um, properties with olanzapine, it doesn't seem to increase the risk of TD. Okay, uh, I think we are almost out of time, so we're going to go for one more question. Uh, would a VMAT2 inhibitor help with positive symptoms by reducing dopamine? Excellent question. I mean, this is basically my question to the companies. You have maybe the first or second um, treatment potentially targeting the pathophysiology where, where schizophrenia has the problem. The schizophrenia has the problem in the presynaptic overproduction of dopamine. 
what we do is we block postsynaptically, thereby actually increasing the presynaptic outpour of dopamine until we hit a balance. That's why we need to block 60 to 80%. But by having maybe an agent like VMAT2 inhibitors that reduce the dopamine outpour, we could have an improved antipsychotic treatment. Now, Ritropin uh, in the early days was used as an antipsychotic, and the agents at the moment have not been tested as antipsychotics. We also don't know whether they further increase antipsychotic activity. They've only been used in stable patients, but it's certainly something that hopefully the companies will look into with follow-on compounds that have uh, maybe uh, a different profile that can be used either for the acute treatment or at least for maintenance care. A second agent that has presynaptic dopamine modulation is actually uh, CEP856. It's a synovian drug under development, a TAR1 agonist, the trace amine-associated receptor agonist that reduces the uptake of dopamine into the presynaptic terminal. So hopefully in maybe five or seven years, we may have one or two treatments that are presynaptic treatments that would not actually increase the risk of tardive dyskinesia or EPS. But great question. Yes, in fact, that uh, TAR1 uh, antagonist that uh, we have coming from Synovion is one of the drugs that I'm covering uh, again this year with more data in my pipeline talk on Thursday. Uh, I think that we've run out of time as it's uh, 3.45, cent 3.46 central time. Uh, if somebody who has uh, a better handle on logistics uh, than I do, let me know if we're done or if I can answer, we can go through a couple more questions. We're waiting for the answer, okay. Well, I'm going to just keep going till uh, I get shut off because that's okay. just the way I usually work. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, would shorter treatment with tar uh, for tardive dyskinesia with a VMAP2 inhibitor versus chronic be effective in eliminating tardive dyskinesia after a treatment period? I think you covered that in the slides, but if you could summarize that again. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know because the data are, are group data. So there may be some people where after you get basically totally rid of the movement, maybe even in addition to also uh, stopping the antipsychotic, you could try to wean off. But uh, in most people, it seemed that there was an increase of tardive dyskinesia symptoms again. But it's something that after good control, you could try by lowering the dose and then you would immediately, um, or not immediately, but uh, after four weeks or so, see whether some of the symptoms come back. Okay. Um, is there any information about the risk of clozapine or quetiapine for developing tardive dyskinesia specifically? Yeah, so the risk of uh, quetiapine was not uh, lower than with the other antipsychotics, not lower than risperidone. As, as a matter of fact, risperidone was also not higher than the other non-clozapine antipsychotics in general, which is interesting. So it's not the tight D2 binding necessarily that gets it. Uh, maybe the serotonin blockade can counter it. Clozapine is difficult because clozapine is given to patients 
that have a lot of uh, prior antipsychotic exposure are more treatment resistant and have more negative symptoms. So just by prevalence, actually, the TD rate is not lower, but it may be lower relative to the TD that people should have based on their clinical profile. But when you look at incidence studies, it is low, and there are also um, data when you switch to clozapine that there can be a reduction of tardive dyskinesia. There were three studies that were meta-analyzed recently. Okay. Um, no one's no one's tried to kill me yet, so I'm going to keep going. Um, why do the VNAT2 inhibitors not increase dopamine supersensitivity in the postsynaptic receptors the way traditional antipsychotics do? Well, that's a great question. Traditional antipsychotics sit on the receptor and basically um, reduce the transmission of dopamine, and then there is an increase in presynaptic dopamine production as well as an increase of dopamine receptors and dopamine um, availability and sensitivity to counter that silencing. By reducing the outpour, you're not altering the receptors. You're not sitting on the receptors that say, I'm itching, you're doing something to me. You're just reducing the overall availability of dopamine and thereby you, you don't uh, need to uh, increase the sensitivity of the dopamine receptors because you're reducing dopamine tone in patients that have too much of it anyway because they have schizophrenia. Okay, uh, let me see. Um, the, uh, you, there's a million questions here. I'm scrolling through to... Um, um, uh, question about prophylaxis against the development of tardive dyskinesia. Yeah, the best prophylaxis is not to start an antipsychotic unless it's necessary to use the lowest necessary dose to not go to a threshold where people would develop Parkinsonism or dystonia and to use the shortest period of time that an antipsychotic is actually needed. Okay. Um, I have another interesting question uh, about whether or not anyone has done an individual item analysis on the AIM score to see which were the components that were most affected by treatment? Yeah, I think these analyses have, have not yielded too much. It, it's mostly those areas. It's not so much the area. It's more like the symptoms that were quite strong that might then be reduced. But I'm, I'm not sure whether I have seen uh, regional specific uh, efficacy. I don't know, Steve, what you would say. Uh, I, I have seen more improvement on the areas that were the worst. Exactly. So uh, that it might just be my own impression, but uh, you know, it, it just looks like everything got toned down and the areas that were the most severe were the ones that improved the most. But you know, after doing studies, you figure out that your clinical impression is frequently just your impression and doesn't match with data. Um, I have an interesting one here. I have worked with several providers who prefer tetrabenazine instead of dutetrabenazine due to cost and the lack of convincing data that there is a truly, uh, truly a difference in the side effect profile. What data is available to say that dutetrabenazine is superior 
to tetrabenazine? Well, that's an interesting question. So obviously the price difference is real, although tetrabenazine is also not cheap being uh, so long on the market. Nevertheless, there are no data, zero, zero data to show that tetrabenazine is better than placebo. We did a meta-analysis of all VMAT2 inhibitors. Not a single study shows that it's better than placebo. They, this, the data are not, are not there. So you would prescribe something totally off-label without any data. Second of all, there are data and risk, at least for the patients with Huntington's chorea, where tetrabenazine is approved, that there is a, a strong signal for depression as well as for suicidality. These data are totally clean for dutetrabenazine and valbenazine. So there's a huge difference. Now, would it be that tetrabenazine studied in the right way in, in tardive dyskinesia patients who are antipsychotics rather than Huntington's chorea patients might also have a lower rate of um, depression or suicidality? We don't know that, but I certainly do not want to take the risk and lose patients to suicide because I give an off-label, unapproved, Proven agent that doesn't have any efficacy data. Right. right. It, it does expose you to medical legal liability that, that, and not to mention harm to the patient that you don't know anything about. Um, if you decided to change dopamine receptor blocking agents anyway, should clozapine be considered as a first option? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, yes and no. I, I, I like to increase the use of clozapine, but clozapine is a big gun and has quite a lot of side effects also. So if you can move the patient to lanzapine, to aripiprazole, uh, to an agent that, that maybe leads to less postsynaptic dopamine receptor upregulation, certainly from a first generation to a second generation agent, do that first. If that doesn't work, you can't use VMAT2 inhibitors, then clozapine is certainly an option. It would most likely keep the patient's psychiatric status stable, but at the same time, uh, potentially reduce the TD symptoms. But again, it's not approved for that, and the data are much less impressive in the meta-analysis that was done, where two studies actually didn't show a difference, and two studies did show a difference when there was a switch to clozapine. So the evidence is smaller, but if the patient would benefit from clozapine anyway, and it's maybe a patient who is more on the treatment refractory side, then by all means, switch them first and see whether that improves both the symptoms as well as the tardive dyskinesia symptoms. Uh, yes, uh, I'm a very strong proponent of clozapine. And in fact, having looked at the data in the optimized trial, uh, which looked at, at giving clozapine versus olanzapine as the second choice after a treatment failure, I now am recommending that the second drug, if you have a treatment failure where the person actually took it, probably should be clozapine and not keep jumping around between other drugs that are not likely to be effective. Um, no, I'm, I'm also a strong proponent of clozapine, but actually, uh, sorry to say that uh, the, the, the comparison was really between olanzapine and aripiprazole, uh, sorry, amisulpride. Uh, clozapine came as a third agent and didn't have a comparator, 
and its its right. uh, effectiveness was only 28%, whereas the first two uh, steps had much better effectiveness. So I think the conclusions of the study, we, we need another, and we need a better study. But you're right, the, the debate is currently whether the second step should already be clozapine and in whom, but certainly we shouldn't wait for more than six months in patients who don't respond well, first episode patients before going to clozapine. I, I fully agree with you. Okay, I'll have to go reread that again. Um, Amisulpride is a very interesting drug. We just don't happen to have it in the United States. Um, a question about, um, and this one uh, comes up at my hospital as well. How would you persuade a healthcare provider to stop treatment with benztropine for EPS? Sorry, can you repeat that question? Or sure, yourself, how would you persuade a healthcare yeah. provider to stop treatment with benztropine for EPS. Yeah, so I think I, I would show them the data by Sofia Vinogradov, who showed that 20% um, of cognition ability and learning was actually impaired by, by the anticholinergic load. So not only are you making the potential risk of tardive dyskinesia worse, you also uh, decrease cognition, something that people with schizophrenia don't have much of to spare. So basically, there's no, I mean, what benztropin does, it just masks EPS. So why don't you just try to get rid of EPS in the first place? Sometimes in the beginning, when dopamine receptors are more sensitive, you might need it, but certainly once patients don't have EPS anymore, you should first try to get rid of it. And if then EPS reemerges, lower the dose of the antipsychotic or switch. You're not doing the patient a favor. And how do you convince them? Well, show them data, um, try to have them argue why they would do something that's not evidence-based. Uh, yes, I actually had one of my uh, colleagues arguing that they heard that benztropine was useful for tardive dyskinesia. And I actually went and pulled the original trial that looked at benztropine for tardive dyskinesia to show them that it actually showed that it was absolutely not and, and worsened patients. Some people take a lot of convincing. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. I think that we're completely out of time and someone's going to clobber me if we don't wind up. Thank you very much, Dr. Carell. It was a wonderful talk. Thank you, Steve. That was wonderful uh, how you hosted this and all the great questions. We hope that this uh, was helpful for your clinical use and good luck with the rest of this virtual meeting. Thank you.